Story 8 of Stories Weird and Wonderful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Losako. Stories Weird and Wonderful by J. E. Muddock. Story 8 The Bride of Death. The House of Sabine had ever been noted for the beauty and queenliness of its women, but none surely had ever been more beautiful and Juno-like than Patricia Sabine. She was indeed worthy of her house, and her house was proud of her. The Sabines were an ancient race, whose proud boast it was that they had descended from that line of grand old Norse kings of whom Fritjof the Bold was such a distinguished representative and in the library of the Sabine mansion, the Fritjof saga, emblazoned on silk and framed in a frame of pure red gold, hung on the wall. For the family were proud of this redoubtable ancestor, and honored his memory by thus framing the romance of which he was the hero. The beauty of a woman may be suggested by words, but they must ever fail to do full justice to the subject for it is by the eye alone that beauty can be best understood. There is, in fact, a beauty that neither words nor brush can paint, a beauty that owes much to the warm flush of light. I'm still referring to feminine beauty, the delicacy of coloring in the skin, the wondrous changes of expression, the magic of the eyes, the grace of carriage, the sweetness of voice. These are things that defy the artist and penman alike. The Greeks of old gave us beauty in their sculptures, but, after all, it was the beauty of death. It is well, however, that the reader should know something of Patricia Sabine, even though the picture has but a faint resemblance to the original. Grace of mold, perfection of limb, stateliness of carriage, were qualities which had ever been characteristic of the Sabine, with a certain imperiousness which was an added charm. For such a type of human nature would have been imperfect had it lacked lordliness. The Norse blood was easily traceable in Patricia. In the tall, stately figure, the clear, deep-set blue eyes. Not the pale, sickly blue which accompanies the lymphatic temperament, but that wondrous violet, such as one sees in the waters that lave the islands of the West Indies, but which must ever be a stranger to the painter's palette, for it is one of the hues that the cunning of man has never yet been able to wring from nature. And fringing these eyes were long silken lashes, and framing them were arched eyebrows of wondrous perfectness. The complexion of the face was literally that of the peach, than which it is difficult, even if we ransack nature, to imagine anything more delicate, more perfect in its blending of tones, or more exquisitely chaste. A straight nose, with quivering nostrils, that responded to every passing emotion, even as an aeolian harp responds to the lightest of zephyrs. Lips that had the coral's redness, and in their curve the grace of Ulysses' bow. Her teeth were as ivory, 
and gleamed even as wet ivory gleams when her lips were parted but even such a face as this a face that wanted nothing in each individual feature to make up a perfect whole would still have been imperfect had it lacked that crown of a woman's adornment the hair truly her hair was patricia's glory it was a glory of the sun's red gold and when it fell about her it was like a veil and might have excited envy in the breast even of one of the mythological sea-nymphs whose locks served completely to enfold them fortunately for her the hideous fashion of gathering the hair up tightly from the neck and pleating it up in a lump on the crown of the head had not come into vogue but even if it had and she had chosen to wear hers so her nuke would have stood the test of the most rigid criticism i have used this french word because it expresses so much and is so wholly untranslatable for while in one sense it means the nape of the neck it also has reference to the curved swell of the back part of the head which embraces the base of the ears and the top part of the neck many a woman who gathers up her hair and drags it tightly from the neck is all forgetful how few there are who can afford to expose this part of the neck for where the lines are rigid and pronounced and the ears bulge away from their base the artistic eye is shocked and the canons of true art are outraged but patricia sabine had nothing to fear in this respect her dainty head was joined to dainty shoulders by a swan-like neck absolutely faultless in its lines and curves i confess to a fear that some who read this description may think i have exaggerated for alas it is sadly true that the ideal beauty in modern women is rarely seen it is sacrificed to the artificial style of living and the moloch of fashion but patricia came from a race who through long generations had been famous for their beauty and she seemed to have inherited the type in its most exalted aspect it will be readily supposed that such a woman lacked not lovers men there were who would have dared the horrors of hades itself for her favoring smile but sighs and entreaties were alike unavailing until she met jasper rail it is difficult to tell why she was attracted by him unless it was due to some powerful magnetic influence which she could not resist rail was a strange man in stature less than she with eyes that were as dark as sloes and glowed like polished ebony his hair in striking contrast to hers was jet black his complexion swarthy and colourless his type was spanish and he had the spaniard's fire the spaniard's pride he was not handsome and yet he was attractive but in what that attractiveness lay would have puzzled any mere casual observer to determine there was something mystic about him that defied penetration although his family had long been settled in england he had spent many years of his life in the east and had wandered in some of the remotest parts of egypt where the foot of the ordinary traveller rarely treads physically jasper and patricia might have mated with advantage but temperamentally they were opposed to each other 
She represented the sunshine and wine of life, he the gloom and the sorrow. She was open and frank as the day, he was given to esoteric. And yet she became fascinated with him, and he talked burning, passionate love to her. But the connection did not meet the approval of her family. They named many reasons why it was inexpedient for her to marry him. But their most forcible and unanswerable objection, perhaps, was that he was a dreamer, not a worker. His wanderings, extensive as they had been, seemed to have all been aimless. He had not enriched the world by adding to its knowledge, and he appeared to have devoted his time to gathering up the mystical lore of the countries through which he passed. He must have had some idea that his suit would not find favor with her relatives, for one night, as they returned from a visit to some of his friends, he suddenly seized her hand and with passionate exclamation said, Patricia, do you really love me? It was a brilliant, frosty night. The air was crisp and crystalline. The stars shone with an arctic splendor. The moon was like a shield of burnished silver. The lovers had preferred to walk, though a carriage was at their disposal, for they wanted the joy of love's sweet dalliance. Their way was along a lonely road, shaded by giant beeches, through whose tangled branches the moonlight fell and was wrought into gleaming filigree work on the ground below. And all around the landscape lay in the shimmering light, looking like an unreal land, or rather a land of mystery, for all was so still. The shadows were so impenetrable, the lighted parts so dreamlike in the silver sheen. Some little distance off, sunk in a hollow, was a large tarn, partly in shadow and partly in light, and it needed but a very small stretch of imagination, as one gazed at it with the glamour of the night about it, to fancy that strange beings from the spirit world were gliding over its mirror-like surface. Surely it must have been in such a spot as this that the beautiful but erring Queen Guinevere met her lover Sir Launcelot of the lake. Patricia was a little startled by her lover's brusqueness, and she made answer with somewhat faltering accents. Yes, but your question seems to imply a doubt on your part. It does imply a doubt, he replied. I do not feel sure of you. Nay, start not. You know that your people are opposed to me. That is true, but have I not told you that I am yours? You have. But in what way have I influenced you? A little shudder thrilled her at this question, and she answered, By some power you possess, and to which I cannot give a name, I am drawn to you irresistibly. You have for me the attraction that the lodestone has for the needle. He burst into a strange laugh that had mockery in it, and said with some bitterness, I understand you are influenced by me, but you do not really love me? You have no right to say that, she replied with a rising inflection in her tone. I speak as I feel and think, said he firmly. I see into your heart and read it. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean to say that you are deceiving me willfully. You think you love me. Nay, I am sure, she answered in low tones, and in spite of herself, 
experiencing a sense of shrinking from him, for he spoke so strangely, and his piercing eyes in which the moonlight was reflected seemed capable of reading her most secret thoughts. I am sure that I love you, he exclaimed with passionate energy, and seizing her in his arms, he kissed her with the burning passion of an ardent lover. Then, with the abruptness peculiar to him, he stopped, and holding both her hands in his, while he peered fixedly into her eyes, he said, You know, Patricia, that according to the mythology of the Persians, every star in the heavens has its special spirit, and every man has his attendant star which receives him at death. This is something more than mythology to me, it is truth. My star and your star are with us now, and hear our words. In their hearing, vow that you love me to all eternity. She was half frightened of him. He had never talked like this before. Was it wine in his head, or madness? she asked herself. The expression of his face was strange. His fiery eyes seemed to burn into her very soul. She could not help but recoil from him. But he drew her forward again and asked, Are you afraid to confess your love now that I have told you two spirits are witnesses? What nonsense are you talking, she said. Nonsense, he cried with a hoarse laugh. Nonsense because you cannot see what I can see? I see two strange forms that walk beside us. They are shadowy and dreamlike, but still I see them, and they shall be witnesses to your vow. What vow? she asked in tremulous tones. I want you to vow solemnly now, with all those burning stars looking down upon us, and in the face of that peerless moon, and in the presence of these ghostly witnesses, that you love me, and will be bride to no one but me. She could not be indifferent to his unusual and peculiar manner. Never before had he exhibited this phase of his character, and she was really alarmed. But with the boldness and firmness of her race, she made answer thus, Jasper, I will vow nothing or tell you nothing while you are in this strange mood. Conduct me at once to my home, and if that is not agreeable to you, I will go alone. He appeared to be deeply hurt, an expression of pain and sorrow swept across his swarthy face. He bowed lowly and with frigid politeness, and offering her his arm uttered the one word, Come. They walked along in silence for some distance. Then he suddenly said, Patricia, if you and I are not wedded in life, we shall be wedded in death. No other man but I can ever possess you. Mark every word of this. It is well that you should. He spoke with such emphasis, such solemnity, that again she shuddered, and when a little later he bade her good night on the steps of her home and pressed his cold lips to hers, she felt a positive relief that the moment for parting from him had come. That night's experience opened her eyes, and she saw what she had been unable to see before. She saw that this strange man with his gloomy and supernatural views was not fitted to be her mate and that it would be the height of folly for her who was so richly endowed and so deeply impressed with the joyousness of living to wed herself to him. Up to that night, she had really believed that she loved him, but she was fully conscious now that he had exerted a power over her, a power that had fascinated her, 
but had not won her heart. How could there be love between two natures so utterly at variance? The result of her reasoning was that on the following day she wrote him a not unkindly, but at the same time a firmly expressed letter, in which she pointed out that happiness was not at all likely to come out of a union between them. She dwelt upon their want of similarity in tastes, and of her abhorrence of the views he held, and concluded with saying that the engagement was broken, and that he must seek someone for a wife who was more suited to him. For a few days she heard nothing of him. Then he came to the house and besought an interview, but fearing to trust herself in his presence, she resolutely declined to see him, and two or three days later he sent a note containing these lines. Remember our last interview, and what I said. These were my words. Patricia, if you and I are not wedded in life, we shall be wedded in death. No other man but I can ever possess you. Mark every word of this. It is well that you should. For a little time she could not shake off a feeling of depression. She did not like to believe that she was in the least degree superstitious, and yet she had to own that she was affected in an unaccountable way. She recalled his wild manner on that solemn starlit night when he had given utterance to those words, as if he had been inspired and was prophesying. As the weeks rolled away, however, and she neither saw nor heard anything of her strange lover, the feeling of depression wore off, and she blamed herself for having been so easily affected. But occasionally, with remarkable suddenness and vividness, the scene of that night came before her mental vision, and she saw it again as if it were an actual reality. There were the dark blue sky gemmed with its myriads of scintillating stars, the moon clear as a silver shield, the great beech trees, the filigree work woven from light and shadow on the road, the country bathed in a dreamy light, the glittering tarn, every detail and every point of the scene rose up before her, and also the spirit of the scene, the remarkable man who had breathed a passionate recital of love to her, and had asked her to vow her love for him in the presence of the astral spirits, those spirits of the stars which he said were to be witnesses to the vow. She would have liked to have forgotten him entirely, but that seemed an impossibility. His dark, wild face and his fiery eyes haunted her. Six months passed, and she heard nothing whatever of him, save a rumor that he had gone to Egypt again. Then she met Ernest Willoughby, Lord D., son of that Lord D., who so distinguished himself during the Crimean War, and who died of wounds and privations in the trenches before Sebastopol. Ernest, himself a gallant soldier, who had already seen much service, was a year or two her senior. He was handsome, brave, frank, and full of life and spirits, a striking contrast indeed to Jasper Rail. His family were noble too, and wealthy, so that a match between the two houses was one that strongly recommended itself to both parties. Almost from the first time of meeting, the young people fell in love and it would have been difficult to have found a couple more suited to each other. Her peerless beauty was well matched by his splendid figure and handsome face. 
There was no serious lovemaking, however, until two months later, when he sought permission to pay his addresses to her, and as she was nothing loth, they stood pledged to each other as lovers. But before she gave him her pledge, she honestly told him of her connection with Jasper Rail. Jasper Rail, he exclaimed as he heard the name, and then, after reflecting for some minutes, he said, I wonder if it is the same Jasper Rail I met once in Egypt. He was at Hermopolis when I was there, and subsequently we journeyed down the Nile together. Yes, it must be the same, she cried, for he has been much in Egypt, and I have heard him say he was at Hermopolis. Well, if it is the same man, Ernest said somewhat contemptuously, he is a half-mad mystic who professed to have studied the occult sciences of the Egyptians. I remember I offended him very much because I laughed at him and told him he would land himself in a lunatic asylum when he told me he had the power of holding converse with the spirits of the dead. Patricia shuddered and said, Well, don't let us talk any more of the man. Though I think I ought to tell you this, he assured me that if I did not become his wife, I should never be wife to anyone else. Did he threaten you? asked Ernest quickly, and firing up with anger. Oh no, not exactly that. He spoke, as it were, prophetically. Well, you can afford to treat that sort of thing with contempt, answered Ernest. The prophecies of such a crack-brained noodle are not in the least likely to come true. Perhaps not, answered Patricia, but the manner in which she said this showed that she was still to some extent affected by Rail's influence. But from that moment he was not referred to again by the lovers, who by mutual consent decided that henceforth his name should be a dead letter between them. The adage that the course of true love never did run smooth was not to be verified in their case. Nothing occurred to interrupt the harmony of their wooing, and never were a man and woman prouder of each other than they were. Ernest was in the habit of saying that the world had not such another woman as Patricia, but lovers have said that sort of thing since time began. Nevertheless, Patricia Sabine, all things considered, would have been difficult to outrival, for allied to beauty of no ordinary kind, were a most winning tenderness and a true womanly nature. Everyone who knew these two predicted for them a long life of unalloyed happiness. The star of good fortune seemed to shine with the most perfect effulgence over their path. The day of the wedding came at last. The marriage, as befitted the union of two such houses, was to be a grand one and to be solemnized in the parish church of the bride's native town. It was summertime, and over the glad earth was cast a robe of beauty into which a wealth of color had been wrought. A wet spring, followed by long brilliant days, had, like a cunning alchemist, turned the cloddy earth to glittering gold. But on the very morning, a morning brilliant with sunlight, while the air was languid with the scent of a thousand flowers and palpitating with the passionate melody of the birds, when Patricia Sabine rose joyous at the thought that in a few hours she would become the bride of the man to whom she had given her heart and with whom she hoped to journey through life until in the fullness of time 
like a good and faithful servant whose duty had been well done, she would pass to that higher life where happiness knoweth no blight. Her maid put a letter into her hand. It was a large square envelope with the device of a serpent on the flap. At any other time, she might have been struck by the eccentricity of this device, but now she was all eagerness, all excitement, for her bridal dress and wreath were there ready to dawn, and a woman on her bridal morn has no eyes for trivialities that do not bear upon the business of the hour. So she tore the envelope open. It contained a sheet of parchment-like paper, at the head of which was the same device of a serpent, and in addition in the left-hand corner was a veiled shadowy figure, whether male or female it was impossible to tell, for the form was only suggested by the diaphanous veil that enveloped it. And over the head of the figure floated a golden star on the paper, written in red ink was this line. We shall be wedded in death. No other man but I can possess you. There was no address, no signature, no date, but these things were not needed to tell her whose hand had penned those cruel words. The paper fluttered to the ground, and with a little cry she reeled against her toilet table, and her maid in alarm sprang to her assistance, but she recovered herself in a few moments and said, Oh, how stupid of me, Marie! Forgive me for alarming you, it is nothing. She laughed, but it was a laugh without laughter in it for once again before her mental vision came back the scene of that wintry night, and she saw the dark, flashing, sinister eyes of Jasper Rail peering into hers. She picked up the sheet of paper, she tore it into little shreds and threw them into the grate, but she could not so easily get rid of the strange, nervous dread that had seized her. Her beautiful face was clouded, and some of its color had faded away, while in those wonderful violet eyes was a restless expression, as though she half expected to see Rail's strange, weird face come before her in reality. Why had he done such a cruel thing as this? Why, on that morning of all mornings, when the glad earth seemed to be singing an anthem of great joy, had he placed a sting in her heart and overshadowed her brightness, which, on such an occasion, should have been perfect? It showed, at least, that he had not forgotten what they had been to each other, and this shaft had been leveled at her on her bridal morn by reason of the bitterness he felt. Presently she stood decked in her bridal robes, and as she surveyed herself in her mirrors, the magnificent picture that met her gaze even put rail out of her head. Truly she was magnificent, and so radiant in her beauty that a king might have been tempted to sell his kingdom to possess her. An hour later, when she walked up the aisle of the church, leaning on her father's arm to the altar, where her husband-elect stood ready to receive her, all the eyes of the assembled congregation were turned upon her in admiration. A bride more bride-like, more stately, more entrancing, it would have been difficult to picture and through the eastern windows fell a glory and wealth of color, and from the organ rose peal upon peal of an anthem, while about the altar steps was a paradise of flowers. But amidst all this pomp and wealth, amongst all this color and beauty, the beauty of women and flowers, there was an unbidden guest, 
whom no one, with one exception, saw. And this unbidden guest was Azrael. When the last words had been uttered, which made the twain one, there rose from one of the front pews a man, whose face was like the face of death, but whose eyes burned with a strange fire. He moved to the altar steps, gliding as it seemed rather than walking. So unearthly did he look in his pallor and the wildness of his expression that those who saw him might have been pardoned for mistaking him for an apparition. But it was no apparition, but Jasper Rail. So rapid had been his movement that no one could stop him, and suddenly he placed his hand on the bride's shoulder. She turned to see who had touched her, and then with a piercing cry of terror, she fell back in her husband's arms. Rail was tottering on his feet, a sickly greenish hue spread over his face, and speaking in a husky, gasping voice like one who was suffocating, while he pointed his finger at the bride, he uttered these strange words. In my veins courses a deadly and subtle poison distilled from Egyptian herbs. I am death, and you are my bride. We cross the dark tide together. He reeled like a sapling that is shaken in the wind. Something in the nature of a mocking laugh broke from his blue lips. Then he sank down on the altar steps, a corpse. Then, and not till then, was the spell lifted that seemed to have bound the assembly during those awful moments. For this unparalleled scene of horror was all enacted within a minute. Women fainted, and men seemed to lose their heads. With a wail of anguish, the poor husband lifted his unconscious wife in his strong arms and bore her to the carriage, and she was quickly conveyed back to the home from whence she had issued an hour or so ago, so full of life, so radiant in beauty so happy in the thought that she was soon to be the wife of her heart's choice. Medical aid was summoned from all quarters. Everything that human skill could do was done. But Rail's prophecy proved only too true. She never rallied from the shock. But ere the day was done, death had claimed her. And the lover, husband, and widower, all within a day, bowed his head over her sweet body and wept. For he was a broken-hearted man. Jasper Rail's revenge had been gratified, his prophecy fulfilled. If he was a madman, he was possessed of more than the ordinary cunning of madness, and no man surely ever planned a more thrilling and ghastly tableau than that which took place at the altar steps at a moment when the woman he had once professed to love became the wife of another. If he had merely counted on the effect that the shock of his startling suicide would produce, he had counted well. But perhaps when he spoke on that memorable winter night, he spoke with the certainty of foreknowledge. Perhaps some power that we know not of enabled him to see the whole scene as it was to occur. But whatever it was, there are some mysteries too inscrutable for human ken. The result was the same and one of the most beautiful of women, in the very fullness of her joy and happiness, and in the first few minutes of her wifehood, was claimed as the bride of death. The bowed and stricken husband never recovered from the blow. In active service abroad, he sought that excitement which seemed the only thing calculated to prevent him from sinking into a condition of morbid melancholy. 
but nothing could ever lift the great shadow that had fallen on his life. That life ended, however, during the recent campaign in the Sudan. Although his youth was far behind him, and his hair was white with the snows of time, he volunteered for active service and fell, sword in hand, on the burning sands of Egypt, while leading a little band of devoted followers against an overwhelming horde of Arabs. He sought a glorious death, and found it. End of story eight. Recording by Mark Losacco.